0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What do we mean by the word clan? Were these Scottish kinship groups more often allies or enemies? And did they really wear tartan? In today's Everything You Wanted To Know episode... Professor Murray Pittock answers your top questions about the history of Scottish clans. As always with this series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via social media. Putting the questions to Murray was Emily Briffitt. Hello to you,
2: Murray. It's lovely to be chatting to you today.
1: Hello, Emily. It's very nice to be on History Extra again.
2: So today we're going to be talking about Scottish clans. We've got a lot of listener questions here and popular search queries that we're hopefully going to be answering. So for listeners who might not know, what is a clan? How do we define that?
1: That's actually not only a very interesting question, but one which is almost impossible to answer in simple terms. So clan literally means children, children but it actually more likely means uh, kindred. Kindred is usually a stronger, uh, I would say, than children in the descriptor. It is fundamentally a quasi-feudal organisation, which is part, generally speaking, the feudal governance of Scotland in the medieval period, later medieval period. The earlier medieval period, you can associate it with the various kindreds uh, that come between Scotland and Ireland. The old view was they invaded from Ireland. There's a more modern view that says they've been resident in Scotland for longer, principally on the Western seaboard. So it starts as, you might say it starts as the kind of kinship and territorially based under kings of the Irish tradition. And it continues to merge more and more closely into the hybrid Scottish model of uh, feudal uh, landholding and service but it retains more or less distinct aspects depending on the kind of clan you're talking about. Because the issue with clans is that they are not a single entity. So we're not actually looking at a single model. We're looking we're looking at a model that develops across time and increasingly hybridises with the structures of the Scottish Kingdom.
2: As another contextual question, where do we typically see clans in Scotland? Is there a particular place or is it all throughout,
1: I think it's very important to note that they are, that they are absolutely everywhere. There are, um, are omegas clans, that is, there are clans which, which lack a chief, but of which you've got a name such as uh, a recognised chief, such as Boswell or Watson. But more likely, they're associated with a particular name and there is a named chief. But often that chief is, are themselves a Scottish magnate so, for example, uh, it's not a Highland phenomenon or a Gallic phenomenon. The Duke of Fife is chief of the name of Carnegie. Uh, as I suggested, the, the, the Marcus of Lothian is chief of the name of Carr. The oldest earldom in Scotland, that of Crawford Balcaris, is chief of the name of Lindsay. The Dukes of Athol are chief of the name of Murray. And, of course, there is a bo- both, in, both for magnate titles and for chieftainships, female inheritance which is not the case in Irish clans so uh, Pauline uh, Hunter of Hunterston is 30th chief of the name of Hunter and Morag MacDougall is 31st chief of the name of MacDougall and the chief of the name is what is the core thing you should be we should be looking at so it's basically it's a Scottish phenomenon and it's linked to land and lordship in Scotland
2: we have this question from Twitter, from Alan Kennedy, who's asked, was there much difference between perhaps the highlands and the lowlands?
1: The, the answer to that is really the difference between the highlands and the lowlands are actually not that much. There's a spectrum from areas which are more or less remote from central power. The traditional border of the highlands doesn't, doesn't make sense. For one thing, it bisects Scottish counties. And if you look at the history of where people think the borders between the highlands and the lowlands are, I won't say no two people have the same view, but there are very variant views and they're variant views also enshrined in UK parliamentary legislation from the 18th century and elsewhere about where the highlands are and where the lowlands are. So it's not not consistent. But if you looked at um, uh, a chief of the name of Murray like Athol, traditionally, he's got part of his lands in the highlands and part of his lands in the lowlands. But in fact, if you look at the way those estates are managed historically and traditionally, there's no real difference between the way that the different areas of his estates are managed, whether the people in them speak speak Gaelic or apparently have a highland way of life. Uh, All these things are really, I think, uh, uh, fundamentally confusing because there isn't a great deal of difference. What there is is a spectrum. Some people who live in the highlands who are magnates behave very like people who live in the lowlands, inverted commas there, who are magnates, but some people are very different. However, some people in the remote lowlands are also, you know, particularly in the borders, are also very different. So actually, it's about remoteness from central power and the kind of landscape you live in much more than it's about some real specifics uh, of um, uh, cultural difference or organisation. That's particularly true by the time we get to 15th, 16th 16th century Scotland. Uh, but uh, but one of the things I would say which we, we may come to in discussing um clan conflict is the extent to which climate change and the little ice age impacted on Scotland uh, after the fourteenth century made uh, made conflict in the areas which were becoming less fertile, increasingly likely, and I think that's part of the traditional view of the highlands.
2: So, I'd like to return to something you said earlier, we were talking a bit about the origins, how the clans came to be in Scotland. So we've had a question from Christopher Gilmore on Facebook, and he's asked, what are the origins of the clan system?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that the clan system, though it's still a frequently used term, is actually a 19th century term. And it's, it, it's a term which belongs to the sort of romanticisation of the Scottish Highlands and the Scottish clans as a culturally different, uh, uh, an internal exotic so I think we should be a bit mistrustful of the clan system. But if you, but fundamentally, uh, so we're talking about an initial social model which is quite similar to the regional under kingdoms and uh, their subordinate lords in Ireland, and which becomes increasingly over time uh, linked into a, to a, a feudal, well, feudal's a bit simplistic, but an, uh, uh, a Norman-Flemish system Uh, which is developed by the Scottish crown from the 11th or 12th century onwards. Uh, The first time a clan, I think, is mentioned in Scottish legislation is Macduff in 1384. So they're identified as a a kindred and association-based interest, uh, which which has got more... Most of Scotland's got a kinship and association base. The question is the balance. So, So it typically people tend to be perceived as clans where the balance in favor of kindred is higher. But that's complicated because a lot of people who take the name aren't at all related to the chief of the name. They're taking the name because they're farming on the chief's land or because they're farming on the lands of associate or, or, uh, of associates or descendants or relatives or indeed friends of the chief. And they may take or not take the name if they're weaker sects you know, weaker groups, weaker social organizations with their own land, who've basically been pressured into joining in with the overall um, lordship of, say, a larger and more powerful organization. So in the case, for example, of Cameron of Lochiel, the Martins and McMartins are right to wear Cameron Tarson because they are a sept of Cameron of Lochiel. They didn't take the name Cameron but they are effectively dependent on the overlordship of the chief of the name of Cameron.
2: This ties into I guess another popular search query which was did all families belong to a clan?
1: Well, it's very it, it's quite hard to say absolutely all because there are always it's, Scotland is more diverse than we think in the medieval and early modern period and there are more people from uh, uh, from abroad um, and of course, there are people of colour in Scotland in the 16th century as well. It's not just a mono-ethnic uh, system. And it certainly isn't as far as clans go, because uh, clans can be uh, can have um, Anglo-Saxon origins. They can have uh, Gaelic-speaking Irish origins. They can have Flemish origins. <clears throat> they can have Norman origins, like uh, Fraser of Lovat or Ramsay of Dalhousie. So they can be from very diverse backgrounds. But... A great many people in Scotland are effectively in a, clan fa- in a clan family of one sort or another. However, they may have very different sorts of relationship with the leader of that family. They may have an intimate relationship with a chief of, the, with the chief of their sept who is quasi-independent or a chief of a small name who's got a fighting tail, you know, that those who would follow, follow their lord to battle in time of war of, say, 50 or 75 men, but they'll have a totally different uh, uh, relationship with somebody like Argyll, who can raise a fighting tail of five or 6,000, allegedly. Argyll and Athol can raise the size of a small national army, and those are very different levels. On the other hand, by the early modern period, we were much less militarised in certain parts of Scotland, still quite militarised. The chief of the name of Forbus we'll be able to raise quite a lot of men, but not anything like that. And then, uh, you know, chiefs of the name in uh, south of Scotland will probably find it very difficult because land holdings become much more distributed. There are many more organisations cutting, uh, cutting across it. Church lands have been divided, rich church lands have been divided in different ways. And the whole area is less affected by the flux attendant on climate change in the late medieval period.
2: We've had a question by Cara Lee Monaghan on Instagram, who's asked about how people chose to align with certain clans. Was there an element of choice?
1: Certainly there could be. If you agreed to, uh, to farm for or to serve a chief, usually chiefs carried a baronial title, but they weren't necessarily lords of parliament, which is, which is confusingly the Scottish equivalent of an English baron. So a, a Scots baron ranks beneath an English baron in the way we now see these things, and a Lord of Parliament ranks equivalent to an English baron. But a lot of, the, a lot of chiefs of the name had at least baronial title, if not uh, actual title as a Lord of Parliament or an Earl, or indeed a, uh, later on a Marquis or Duke. So you come into their service and you might, you might easily take their name. That becomes a bit less common as time goes on. If you farm for them, you're quite likely to. Or if you, I mean, if you're a subdependent, absolutely. If you're a subdependent subtenant, absolutely.
2: How large was a typical clan? I know we've spoken a little bit about how, how many men they could take take in, but
1: it there is an awful lot. So there are relatively small groups. Uh, often they are um, septs separated by geography with a strong, for example, MacDonald Glencoe. who have got a strong identity. But are largely one of, one of the various parts of Clan Donald and are quite distant, uh, are quite remote and uh, geographically difficult to get to. And there are relatively small, uh, relatively, relatively poor, small clans, roughly like, not that poor, but Chisholm, for example, Chisholm or Castle compared to uh, one of the great Dukes or Earls of the Midlands or south, south of Scotland. That's a very different, uh, very different size of entity. Uh, so they really do come in all shapes and sizes. And of course, uh, they're also landless clans, particularly uh, uh, you know, clans like uh, the MacGregors, who are deprived after 1600 for allegedly their lawlessness, but actually because they get in the way of quite a lot of the ambitions of the House of Argyle and, and some of its allies. And they're not the only ones who end up in that situation. The Laments also fall victim to the, victor, to the house of Agar. So sometimes small clans are swallowed up and they become, they become contributing sects or they take the name of the overlord. Sometimes they're actually, they're actually attacked.
2: I'd like to move on to talk a bit more about their communication and governance. But before I move on to that, I'd like to ask you, we've had a couple of questions from Leah Welsh and Jim Jimstagram on Instagram, who've both asked, was there a sort of a clan era, a sort of a peak time for clans?
1: Peak clan. What is peak clan? Well, it really does depend on on what sort of clans you like. Orderly Powerful clans who have a quasi autonomous relationship with the Scottish Crown, then the era from Summerled to the end of the Lord of the Isles, uh, Lordship of the Isles in 1493, that's your peak clan moment. You you have the the culture of the, the culture of the Lord of the, of the Lord of the Isles, the ascendancy of Clan Donald of the Western Seaboard, what's often seen as a kind of uh, Uh, sometimes perhaps rather romanticized, but a a Gallic renaissance infused by the Norse descent of uh, Summerled and his family. So there's that. But on the other hand, your peak clan might be so-called highland-lowland war, uh, in which case your peak clan might be after the fall of the Lordship of the Isles to the middle of the 17th century. But if your peak clan is also is clans involved in Jacobitism and fighting for the House of Stuart and opposed to um, the British state, then your peak clan probably runs from the 1640s to 1746. So those are three options for peak clan. A lot of what we think of as important in, in the clan history is actually something we're imposing on it, because we're trying to reduce it to a set of expectations that we've got about Highland-Lowland, about the Lordship of the Isles, about the Jacobites. But it's it needs to be understood as a historical continuum which doesn't fit into these neat patterns quite so well.
2: That's certainly a really important point to make, I think. So, as I said, we are going to move on to a bit more about communication and governance. So we've had um, one from Facebook, which is... How did each clan operate itself in terms of governance?
1: Governance is quite a, is quite a big word for, for what went on. Fundamentally, here's where the hybridity comes. If it's a relatively small clan or separated set, the chief is, slight, is, is, is rather more like depending the father of his, usually the father in that case. But generally speaking, you will want a warrior in a small group because they will, um, you'll need one so uh, that would be a that's often a closer and less formal relationship. A typical relationship a middling relationship is for uh the the tenants in chief of the the uh, the chief of the landholder, the tenants in chief of the chief uh to be the taxmen of the chief and to be responsible. They would act as really the captains of companies in the chief's regiment. That's a middle sized kind of organization uh they would call in the duty which would partly be a duty paid in kind rather than cash rent, i.e. in service in time of war rather than in cash rent. And that uh, for the, um, that would compose their subtenants would be the fighting tale of the chief. Um, but it, 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 like everything in the system, it's muddled and hybrid and compromised. So it's a confused picture, but that's the basic
2: Narwhal Nitz on Instagram has asked, how far back do we have evidence of this kind of clan organisation?
1: So, as I suggest, I think the organisation is a bit of a moot point. Some clans trace their name and ancestry back a long way. Among them are Lament, uh, MacLachlan, uh, MacAlpin. Mc, uh, the House of MacAlpin is supposed to have unified Scotland in 843. We now generally place it rather later. And the McKinnons and MacGregors claim descent from McAlpin. But in terms of organization, once again, the journey we're traveling is a, is a journey from an organization which is uh, kinship and loosely territorial-based, but a lot, of, a lot around kindred, to one which is more like a conventional feudal lordship. And a lot of the organization lies across a spectrum because the initial, that initial kindred organization never actually disappears but it becomes attenuated and it becomes more intensely realised in small or local organisations than it is, for example, in a big clan. Making a difference between a big clan and uh, a great magnate makes no sense because that's what they are. They are great magnates, the House of Argyle.
2: The Tudor Age on Twitter has asked, how did the clans dispense their own justice?
1: Well, again, it's a complicated process. What generally happened was that, uh, was that um, rights barons had, the, had baronial court right had baronial court rights and rights of regality, which included um, try, uh, uh, the ability to try the most serious crimes under the crown, are granted as regality rights as rights under the crown. Technically speaking, these rights would normally accrue to somebody who was an ally of the crown and was granted lands. Fundamentally in order to subdue them and owe oh, fealty to them for the crown in medieval Scotland. It's, it's a bit more complicated than that, but not that much more complicated than that. So um, those, so effectively, they would dispense justice in their localities. And when the modern system of justice occurred uh, uh, appeared in Scotland, typically, um, significantly more than in England, uh, the things change over time... Early, the early formal justice in Scotland was being carried out uh, by noblemen. And indeed, noblemen often had careers in the Faculty of Advocates and the conventional uh, uh, legal profession in the early modern period because there was this continuum between uh, local courts and the, court of, and the Court of Session. And you can still see that in a way with the Office of Sheriff Principal in Scotland, because in the old days, the sheriff principal usually had rights. Well, did have rights of regality uh, uh, and regality courts. So, basically, if you look at the order of precedence and the formal dinner in Scotland, sheriff principals rank above English dukes if they're in their own county, uh, because that, that is a leftover of the ancient rights of regality, which transferred themselves from a local administered justice system to what was beginning to be a centrally administered justice system. But those rights continued until heritable jurisdictions, that's the inherited rights principally of regality, baronial court rights survived, were abolished by the Heritable Jurisdictions Act of 1747, because the British government saw them as a fundamental threat to uh, the integration of the United Kingdom, because that degree of power, the dispenser of justice for the landlord to have that degree of power, uh, meant that they could effectively control their uh, um, their subordinates in a much more direct way and compel them to come to the field to, to fight. That wasn't altogether absolutely right, but they had a point. Um, however, the old system of dispensing justice with the exception of baronial courts which survive, to some extent, for longer than that, this goes in 1747.
2: Johnny the Great on Twitter has asked, did clans have a form of centralised, Uh, well a central organisation were they largely independent of each other and or did they regularly communicate?
1: I don't think one can really make generalise about regular communication I mean the leaders of the great clan families of Scotland did communicate because they were sitting as the lords in the estates they were involved in the governance of Scotland they were rivals friends and allies and that extends down the system but probably not or down the the pecking order, but not quite the way not not quite the way to the bottom. I mean, there isn't a grand alliance or union or a union of clans, uh, the clan, the professional association of all clans, or anything like that. So effectively, again, it's it, it, it's a system which ultimately depends theoretically on the crown, but doesn't actually. And now that there's that there there is that tension. But many of the things we think of as um, Clan conflict from Pete, from a, from Pete clan era, for example, the wolf of Badenoch or the Battle of Harlor at the turn of the fifteenth century, those actually turn out to be squabbles uh, uh, squabbles over magnate rights depending on the king and at the Battle of Inverlochy, when the lion banner of the crown is unfurled, certain of the clans opposing the crown don't do so because they would uh, they would fight their peers who owed fealty to the crown, but the presence of the crown on the battlefield, the presence of the royal, the royal standard, meant that they were they were uh, they were unwilling. Wasn't always the case, but they were often unwilling to stand against the royal standard when it was unfurled. We're talking here about the medieval period rather than the early modern period.
2: I want to ask you: Were there any wars between the clans?
1: Yes, there are there are quite a lot of there are quite a lot of conflicts. Um, I think sometimes the, the, the crown of Scotland kind of arranged formal battles between them, kind of as entertainment um, almost. But there are, a lot of the conflicts come from two things: the breakup of the lordship of the the breakup of the lordship of the Isles, which starts what's called call the you know the, the age of Fores. The breakup of the lordship of the Isles in fourteen ninety three because it's because it's an inconvenience to the crown of Scotland, not least because of their alliance under the Treaty of Ardenham with um, Edward IV of England in 1462, uh, which wasn't exactly a positive if you were the king of Scots. The break of Lordship of the Ars meant that there, that there was a struggle for control, uh, as there nearly is when always is when there's a power vacancy. But that also went with the fact that you know the, the declining climatic conditions are really important, uh, arguably for the uh, not determining, but uh, but important for the period from the fourteenth uh, to eighteenth centuries. Uh, as we go as we go on, so if you look back to the thirteenth century in the south of Scotland, there were sheep being held by the Abbey of Kelso at three hundred metres, thousand feet, and their crops being their crops being grown at high altitude um, in Scotland. So. You typically get an awful lot of disruption potentially where where there's a controversy over land because of the breakdown of the Lordship of the Isles, and there's also uh, uh, there's also less land than is good that used to, that is good than there used to be, and a lot of it's very marginal. The determination for land is a really important element of uh, the of uh, the system, if you like. I, I, I don't particularly like the word term clan system, but but land is really important. It's a very these are settled communities. They farm, and one of the things that leads to the critical uh, the critical collapse of such of such large settled communities, and later on to the clearances, is that the land gets subdivided too much. The population rises, and people increasingly join the British army for the consideration that they will get more land, and then they, the land is divided between uh, between families. And in the end, the plots become unworkably small quite often. So uh, you know, so economic crisis is always lurking around the corner when there's a lot of competition among a rising population for poor land. But basically, it's a land-driven economy. and All those conflicts come from uh, lack of clarity over who owns the land or the deteriorating quality of the land one owns.
2: I wanted to pick up on something you said about the age of forays. We've had a question from Jen Scott on Twitter. She's asked specifically, was the age of as actually as violent as myth would have it?
1: Generally speaking, it's fair to say that no period in Scottish history is quite so violent as myth would have it. I think we've got, we've got to be very careful about uh, a, a, a history which views, for example, the Wars of the Roses as a kind of unfortunate accident which got in the way of... um merry england uh but which nobody got really hurt and if they did it was transient and views scottish society as endemically violent the indications we have really are that i mean yes there is quite a lot of violence but it's not uh uh, it's not cataclysmic and it's not unmanageable it doesn't lead to um social breakdown the very good work of um of alan McInnes. this don alan McInnes. Clanship Commerce and the House of Stuart points out that uh, really an awful lot of it is about conflict at what we now think of as the Lowland Highland borderline, but is actually conflict over lands which are contested and also uh, by also families who've been rendered landless by, for example, the growth and ambition of the House of Argyle and uh, also um, those who are, who uh, have got a contested heritage the boundaries of whose lands are not entirely clear and that's that's quite likely because some land is held by charter from the crown and some land is not held by charter from the crown if it's been occupied for long enough and there's often a mixture and it's difficult in those cases to be sure so the violence is visible really in a certain portion of Scotland uh, and it gets exaggerated because it subsequently becomes part of a mythic conflict between the Saxon lowlands and the Celtic highlands, which is really not what it was about at all.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: You wouldn't see a regimented clan all wearing their tartan, and, that, and now we say that's because they weren't really clan tartans, that's a conventional view, but actually that's not quite true. There, there, are, there are ones which are associated with families but only people who really were um, the officer class, if you like, uh, could have possibly afforded them.
2: We've had a few more specific tidbits of history questions from our listeners, so I hope you don't mind, I was going to delve into those. So if I start with, the Tudor age on Twitter asked, what were the origins of
1: reaving? The origins of armed theft. Of property that one's neighbour cannot adequately defend, probably go back an extremely long, in fact, beyond the edge of human history. So, in that sense, that's what that's what reaving is. There are certain customs uh, in reaving, um, which is largely, of course, uh, uh, associated with the south of Scotland. People talk about, uh, and it's often cross-border, cross, and so there's an element of ritualised Anglo-Scottish war built into. Reaving culture, but it's not. That's not the only dimension of it at all, and it is linked, of course, to uh, to southern families who generally are smaller landowners, not great magnates, but prominent local families such as the such as the Armstrongs. What it be, has become is a story about Anglo Scottish conflict, which is also a story about armed theft. But a lot of that is the way it's been shaped. In the minds of many reavers, there probably was a dimension of Anglo-Scottish conflict, sometimes very markedly so, uh, but there's also just quite a lot of armed theft because uh, they think they often think they can get away with, um, with reducing somebody else's goods and property, and they can. Uh, again, we can exaggerate the levels of violence. We can also exaggerate the concept of the debatable land See, this Anglo-Scottish border was largely fixed in 1237. There was a small area that wasn't. It's a few square kilometres. But it's become amplified as if the whole border was some sort of great contested zone. Uh, And it wasn't. Uh, Where the border was, was pretty well established. And indeed, there was a great deal of courtesy on both sides. So when an English invading force under Richard II comes into Scotland in 1384, a woman living in the northwest uh, near Carlisle gives the alarm to the Scots over the border that the English are coming. And she is arrested, but she is, uh, she is not uh, convicted because it's accepted that as a Scotswoman living in England, she's in the obedience of the King of Scots, and she's acted according to her uh, to her feudal duty uh, in, in warning her compatriots that there is an English army approaching. So I have to say that even in the 14th century English justice was capable of giving uh, a fair hearing to Scots in England who compromised their military secrets.
2: How involved were clans in this? In reaving, yes.
1: Well, it depends how you uh, look at the families, but providing you accept that they are really operating in this, in a not the exactly the same system, but a system inflected to their locality in their area, which is kindred and association based then families like the Armstrongs, the Eliots, uh, and the Nixons very much do fit into, uh, into that pattern. This is not an analogy which any historian of the clans would, would necessarily thank me for, but I'm going to say that in a way there is something about, about this sort of culture which is reminiscent in the modern era of Cosa Nostra, that you know, it's the family, but the family extended by dependents, friends, and allies with a finger in various pies, though roofing was a lot more simpler than the construction industry, and geared to a way of life which is simultaneously quite mostly respectable, but given to undertones of criminality and violence at critical moments.
2: I've got another specific question here for you, which is about the effect the Reformation had on the Scottish clans. Did branches of the same clans both remain Catholic and become Protestant? Or did everyone tend to follow a sort of common faith in one clan?
1: I think that the the religion of the chief of the name was important, but it wasn't wasn't enough to guarantee that that, uh, that would be the ubiquitous position. And I think also one might quite often say that people's religion was to seek for example, the Macdonalds of Glencoe, when they were being set up as victims of the notorious massacre in 1692, um, murder under trust, violation of hospitality, a huge amount made of that, quite rightly. But actually, the Campbells had done much the same things to the Lamonts in Dunoon in 1646. When that, that was being contemplated, they were viewed as Catholics. But they're probably Episcopalians. And actually, Presbyterian Scotland, uh, which is largely the central belt, it then becomes, uh, the, the victory of Presbyterianism is in a way the victory of the central belt over a Scotland which was um, much more evenly divided in years, in centuries past, uh, can't tell the difference between Catholics and Episcopalians all the time. They really can't. And so it's actually quite difficult to know sometimes, phrases of love are definitely Catholic, some McDonalds MacDonald, some are Catholic, some are not, uh, What what the religion of the organization is. In the rising of 1745, Cameron Lochiel's regiment, uh, largely raised from, uh, from Cameron's own lands, two battalions of men, they had a Catholic, a, an Episcopalian, and a Presbyterian chaplain. And that probably, not everybody had that degree of service for comfort on the battlefield, but um, that was probably not untypical in large parts, large parts of Scotland. I did talk about north and south. I just want to say that as late as the 1750s, half of Scots lived north of the Tay River. So we're looking at a very... When we're talking about the highlands, we're not talking about a lovely wilderness full of nobody. Uh, we're talking about a, quite a heavily populated area. The north of Scotland is quite heavily populated. We're looking at a very different kind of demographic and, uh, popula- and, and population distribution a position from the one that steadily developed after 1800.
2: You spoke a little bit about the 45 rebellion. Johnny Hill on Facebook asked this specific question. He said, "Why, with a clear path to London, do we see a retreat in the 45 rebellion?"
1: The retreat was at the retreat was at Derby, called Derby because the majority of Charles Edward's council felt that it would be unwise to advance. They put it more strongly than that, given the relative absence of English support and the non-appearance of the French. But if they had a better intelligence system, they would have been able to be in touch with the French to know that they actually did intend to appear on this occasion. The, uh, so the English issue was interesting because the Jacobites habitually overestimated English support, but actually, when Charles II took a Scottish army down to Worcester in 1651, they got almost no recruits anyway. Uh, England was a significantly less militarised society. And even as long ago as the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, Richard III had difficulty getting men out because basically they'd rather go to the pub. I have to say the English have had a long history of being really sensible about domestic warfare, which is encouraging.
2: How many clans actually backed back the Jacobites?
1: Okay, so it's it's a difficult question to answer because of the of the crossover between what people think of as clans and what people think of as magnates. So actually, um, so actually, in 1746, there, they try and calculate this. Of course, at the time, the British government's very keen to know, and and there's a document which says these men were brought out by, by the name of Murray, and there's another one that says actually the Murrays are no clan family. Uh, they're, they're the Dukes of Athol and they actually can't get in their head, this into their head so actually say counting clans is it can be a little bit uh, a little bit deceptive so what i prefer to say is that in 1715 uh, the first rising probably 70% of the maximum number of fensible men in Scotland fought for the Jacobites so it's a huge turnout one in six adult males in the country are uh, of military age uh, and Effectively, um, given the risks they were running and the fact they were a volunteer force, it's enormous. Seventeen forty-five, it's a bit less. It's uh, round about uh, thirteen to fourteen thousand, and some of those came from uh, came from France and Spain. So that, and indeed England, so probably round about a third of the total number of men who could be raised in Scotland in both risings. Uh, Far more Scots fought for the Jacobites than against them, despite that that's a real, that's a real um, canar, a real urban uh, uh, urban myth about more Scots fighting against than they didn't. But there were a lot of uh, clan families who either sat on the fence. Uh, one of the septs of, of Clan Donald uh, was pro-Jacobite, was blackmailed into sitting on the fence because they tried to sell their um, some of their uh, dependents into slavery only a few years before. And uh, they're not all, they're not always nice people. These folk, and also some others sat on the fence because they thought they would lose, or watched and waited to see which way it would go. And quite frequently, um, one son was sent out and one son retained. That sometimes worked; it didn't always. So MacDonald Glengarry is very keen to pretend it was nothing to do with him, but in fact, it's rather it was more. It was understood that there were a lot of insurance policies where part was raised, a part were raised and part not. But interestingly, um, in, in, for example, the Athol lands, although the, the Duke, uh, opposed the rising chief of the name of Murray, the, 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 de Jure, the kind of real chief of the name of Murray, uh, his brother, his elder brother, who had been deprived of because he was Jacobite, uh, raised most of the, most of the men off the Athol lands that, are. Uh, could have done better, but but hardly anybody wanted to rise for the crown and to support the crown forces against the Jacobites.
2: Following on from this, we've got another question on Facebook that's asked about how the British government sort of disbanded the clan system after the Battle of Culloden. And I know we've said about the use of clan system. So can you tell us a bit more about this?
1: OK, so that, so first is the. the... I have my doubts whether there's a clan system and the British government didn't disband it. So you're seeing a situation where there are a lot of social pressures on the system, that landholding and the nobility, the fine, they're much more integrated in Scottish society than you think. So, for example, you know, Lord Lovett, the archetypal bad Highlander, Simon Fraser, the fox, goes to school in Aberdeen Grammar School. That's where he went to school. Rob Roy MacGregor visits his cousin. Uh, uh, his cousins are astronomers and mathematicians at the Universities of Aberdeen and St. Andrews. And Rob Roy visits them on occasion. He doesn't belong in some, you know, neverland. So there isn't, there isn't that kind of level of distinctiveness. But what happens is the undermining of heritable jurisdictions means that the powers of regality are the ultimate powers of life and death. Are, uh, are removed. A lot, however, a lot. It's not a. It's not an end of the ability to raise men. A lot of men are raised in 1756, 57 for the war for the Seven Years' War. Indeed, one of the things about about Lord Lovett's son, who's just as cunning as his dad, but gets a better press, is that he's involved with the Jackal rising, and promptly surrenders the British army with the, uh, leading one of the three battalions of the House of Fraser. Ten years later, he raises three more battalions of the House of Fraser, suckers for punishment, many of whom are killed at the Battle of Ticonderoga in 1758. So they absorb huge casualties to prove the loyalty of their leaders uh, fundamentally. But he's still able to do that. Uh, so that, about, that bond doesn't start to break up until the economic position becomes untenable, because there are the, the uh, increases in population uh, for the first phase of clearance and the long-term uh, subdivision of, in, of uh, smaller, farm, smaller farms, uh, landers, uh, landers—the reward for British military service. So, British military has got a huge appetite for these men. Uh, they're pretty good, uh, and they're assiduously built up by their chiefs as pretty good, even where they're not that great, because the chiefs get a lot out of that. I mean, um, they—you know—they—they they get all the status. And then they want to cut a figure in London and they get a bit short of money. And so they raise the rents. And already people are struggling on these marginal small farms and they no longer want man rent of any sort. So they're not wanting rent in terms of military service anymore because the British government has something to say about that. So they want, they want money and there isn't any. And then, of course, the system starts to break down. And it also breaks down as, as taxmen, the middle layer, start to emigrate. Some of them take up opportunities in the British Empire. So it's the British Empire and the structure, the integration of principally northern Scottish troops in the British Empire from the 1750s onwards that probably is the culmination of the collapse of what we then came to characterize as the clan system. And we tend to migrate towards more and more recognizably British Types of magnate power as we go forward into the 19th century. But it's really important to notice that actually in Scotland before 1707, all of, this was, all of this was to some extent still present. It's just that the process was completed and accelerated by the military and imperial conditions of the second half of the 18th century.
2: I think I've just got to ask you this. It's a very popular question. I think it's almost an inevitable one when coming to talk about Scottish clans. About tartan, when did it come to be associated with clans?
1: Tartan is uh, uh, tartan begins to be associated with soldiers from Scotland, particularly because of the recruit of uh, quite a large number of recruitment of a large number of kilted soldiers in the 16th century. There are there is evidence. I mean, there's a there, there is evidence of tartan being fashionable at court in as long ago as James IV, the beginning of the 16th century. And tartan becomes a national expression of Scottishness, which it, which it continues to have into the 17th and indeed the 18th century. It's recorded by one observer that 90% of the women in Edinburgh were still wearing plaid in 1747. So tartan is much more widespread than we sometimes think it was. And one of the reasons it was uh, prescribed, except in the British army in 1746 was because it was used in the Jacobite era as a statement of Scottish patriotism. But because you couldn't prosecute it under English treason legislation, because he's just wearing something, he's not, they're not saying anything, they're just wearing it. Ah, what can we do? Then eventually that led to it being prescribed itself. And, and of course there were certain tartans like the Jacobite pattern created at Edinburgh in 1713 which was even more explicit and said which side of the, the divide you were on. But tartan, uh, 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 clan or family tartans certainly date back to some extent to the 16th century. But the colours that we have today, those are fundamentally based on the industry created by the Wilsons of Bannockburn and uh, some of the rather uh, pseudo-clan histories put together by the Sobieski Stuarts and others in the 1830s and 1840s. So they're not accurate. Loud colours, for example, were often used, but they were used as an expression of importance, as being one of the chief chief of the name or their immediate retinue and family, because they were expensive. I mean, dyes were imported into the Western Isles uh, um, throughout Scotland to make loud colour tartans, principally red and yellow. But they wouldn't be worn by everybody because everybody simply couldn't afford them. So you wouldn't see a regimented clan all wearing their tartan. Mm. And, that, and now we say that's because they weren't really clan tartans. That's a conventional view. But actually, that's not quite true. There, there, are, there are ones which are associated with families, but only people who really were um, the officer class, if you like, uh, could have possibly afforded them. One of the interesting things that happens in the 19th century, and that we are still struggling out from under the mythology that's accumulated around the clans, is that it became a way of mark. It became linked to particular families alone, and you weren't supposed to wear a, a clanic a, a tartan, unless some ones like Black Watch and Royal Stewart were accessible, because you you weren't a member of a particular family. But that was actually a way of creating a kind of ethnic identity within the British Empire, especially for Scots. And it was uh, and it was often linked to a military one. To this day, formal dress for men who were wearing the kilt is very military with its epaulettes and, uh, its, uh, uh, and its buttons. It looks quasi-regimental. And so there was a link between the role of Scots and the British Empire, particularly in the army, and the ethno-cultural identification of the tartans, signalling people who belonged to particular families. But actually, historically, although it was often linked to families, uh, it was also much more broadly linked to allegiance and identity uh, and association So it's not about the wearing of different tartans is not an issue of blood. That's uh, that's the 19th century, the story of the 19th century, which unfortunately invented uh, largely the, the idea of blood identity as we now understand it.
2: From the idea of it almost being like a regimental form of dress, we've had this question from Alex Plotkin on Facebook who's saying, are there particular clans that might be associated with Scottish regiments?
1: Uh, well, there certainly are because, uh, because the, in the 1750s, of course, the uh, Frasers, MacDonald of Glengarry, all among uh, early, early clans to raise regiments. The the root the root uh, Scottish regiment which has got some clan association is probably what turned into the Royal Scots, which the Earl of Dumbarton's regiment, which spent some time in the French and sometime the English service in the 17th century. But more conventionally, it's normally held to be the Black Watch, which was recruited from the independent companies, which some uh, some Scots have said were necessary for to support the British government in Northern Scotland. Sometimes sincerely, sometimes with an eye to the money, prestige, and lulling uh, the British government of false sense of security that would accrue from their uh, from their operating the independent Highland, the so-called independent Highland companies and the Black Watch became uh, a, a gr- recruited from that group. But individual, inverted commas, clan regiments, uh, magnate regiments followed soon afterwards by the, 17, by the 1750s. And they continued, uh, of course, Gordon Highlanders and so forth uh, allegedly recruited. Every recruit was allegedly allowed to take the King's shilling from between the lips of the Duchess of Gordon and therefore receive a kiss. So uh, whether she actually did this or not, it was just PR. I'm not sure we've got the, the actual, the evidence. But you see the, <laughs> the connection of uh, allegiance and magnate power of, of all sorts. So in the mess hall uh, in World War, II, World War II, the Cameron officers, Cameron Highlander officers would toast the king over the water as part of the ritual of a mess dinner. I uh, you know, it's private allegiance to the Jacobites centuries after the event and, of course, entirely, you know, ritualistic and sentimental. But, of course, all that's all that's effectively gone. And one of the reasons for the, the resistance, even from quite a lot of people in the Scottish, uh, 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 Scottish National Party to the uh, amalgamation and dissolution of the Scottish regiments is the close links that those regiments historically have to localities, magnates and names. Uh, and how many of them were actually originally raised by the chief of the by the chief of the name or one of his close relatives,
2: so you've spoken a little bit about the idea of myth and kind of common understanding of what it is. What do you think are the perhaps the biggest myths about Scottish clans?
1: This could take upwards of an hour and a half, but um, it's, i I'll, I'll try and boil it down to ninety seconds. The biggest myths about the Scottish clans are um one, that they all belong to a different race, which you could call Celtic. Two, that they all spoke Gaelic. Three, that they're backward and primitive. Four, that they're incurably violent or of immense talents in the areas of uh, immense talents in the areas of violence. Five, that they're lazy and feckless. Six, that they had a significantly different way of life. From people who lived uh, uh, not far away from them, who spoke English or Scots, uh, seven that they had mystical uh, they had mystical landholding traditions, which were radically different in every respect. They were different in some respects uh, from that which pertained elsewhere. Eight that they were primitive communists, and I think that probably takes us as far as the highlights of what was uh, what's wrong with our understanding of. The traditional of uh, the traditional clans. We have to remember that somebody uh, like Cameron of Blakel in the 18th century was uh, a gentleman at the court of Louis the 14th. It was very easy for these people to slot into European noble society, and they didn't slot into noble society by um, wearing animal skins and wielding broadswords 24 seven. They were noblemen, and although the life of someone like Macdonald of Kepach might have been closer to uh, uh, that of uh, a tribal leader than a nobleman, an awful lot of uh, what we call clan life is very difficult to distinguish from the life of um, Scottish feudal society.
2: I think that's a really important point to make. Actually, busting the myths on clans, definitely. So the last question I have for you is we've had so many questions from our listeners about particular clans, maybe wanting to find out a bit more about their specific clan history. So unfortunately, we don't have time to go into absolutely every single one of these because we might be here for years. But for our listeners who are looking at researching specific clans, are there any places that you would recommend for them to look?
1: Well, there are are a lot of places. Uh, There's a site which you can Google as family records in Scotland. There are some clan links held under individual clan sites, such as Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S. There are many records held via the site which you can Google as Scotland's people. Uh, There are also um, large archival holdings in what are called the family muniments of the national records of Scotland. For example, the early ones, which are the Ogilvy family, uh, Hay, of Hast- Hay of Haston, the Gordon Castle Holdings, the Dalhousie Holdings, which are Ramses, and their individual um, clan archives. So Clan Donald has an, archive, uh, has an archive at Armadale, Guy. So that's there are a wide range of places where people can be, can begin to look uh, for um, the uh, the locations of their families. So, of course, often and usually, these families are associated with families, groups, kindreds, lordships, are associated with particular areas. It's so difficult to be politically correct in describing what we, as a short time, call clans. It's a name which has survived so long, part for that reason, but it's, it, it, it's, it covers quite a complex and finessed set of social and um, landholding arrangements in Scotland.
0: That was Murray Pittock, Bradley Professor of Literature and Pro-Vice Principal at the University of Glasgow. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.